If you have your Bibles with you, you will want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're not going to be too, doing too much exploring today. We'll be staying mostly in 1 Corinthians as we um, continue our Christmas series, um, in which we're looking at different perspectives of Christmas. And today we're going to be looking at Christmas from the world's perspective. In 1873, a 13-year-old boy named Chester Greenwood, who loved to ice skate, attempted to put together and design something that would protect his ears from cold weather in order that he could spend more time outside ice skating because the cold temperatures eventually would force everybody to come inside before the sun went down. So he found a piece of wire, and he enlisted his grandma's help in attaching pads to either end of this wire. He bent the wire over his head, and he went out to ice skate. And his friends thought it was the most ridiculous thing they had ever seen, and they laughed at him. It looked like ears, I don't know, you know, kind of like a TV antenna. And so they're out there laughing at him because it looked so stupid to them. And yet they couldn't stay outside and laugh for too long because it was too cold for them to stay out. And uh, yet, because Chester's ears were covered, he was able to withstand the freezing temperatures longer than any of his friends could. And so within only a few days, these friends of Chester's were no longer laughing at him, no longer ridiculing him. Rather, they were asking him to make a pair of these things that would come to be known as earmuffs for them too. And three years later, at the age of 16, Chester applied for a patent for these things called earmuffs, and that led to Chester building a huge factory that would make him very, very wealthy for the next 60 years. And there are innumerable stories that go exactly like this one. Somebody uh, has an idea, and so they, they invent something, and they're laughed at, they're ridiculed, they're mocked, and it turns out to be something useful or sometimes even revolutionary. We find one example after another in fields like science and, and technology. And today we're going to focus on the world's perspective of Christmas as we enter into the Christmas season, I don't think it's a secret any longer that the season which is supposed to bring and, and to represent peace has turned into something of a season of hostility. Many who are hostile and rebellious and, and hateful toward God now see Christmas as an opportunity to pour out their resentment on him. And so they do everything within their power to ensure that there are no nativity scenes, no religious messages, no billboards, no TV ads in the public venue. And the only way that anybody could miss the fact that there is a war on Christmas, a very real war on Christmas, is if, I don't know, they don't have newspaper or television or internet. I mean, you'd have to live under a rock somewhere out in the wilderness, to think that there has not been a deliberate effort, in, especially in recent years, to destroy Christmas. For example, a few years ago, 
in Santa Monica, California, the city decided to stop allowing a, a church group, a Christian group, to put up a nativity scene in a certain space every year and decided instead to have a lottery in which various religious groups could be, uh, you know, could, could enter for a drawing for a lottery and be chosen to allow, uh, to be allowed to use this space as they wish. And so in 2011, a group of atheists applied and won the space, and they decided to put up images of Satan, Jesus, and Father Christmas with the tagline, 37 million Americans know a myth when they see one. What myths do you see? And this forces us to ask a question because this is so blatantly hostile. And the question that it forces us to ask is, why? Why are they so radically hostile toward Christmas? I mean, don't these people see the beauty of Christmas? Given the significance of Christmas, the time, celebrating the time when Jesus stepped out of eternity and took on flesh, why don't those who don't know Christ just cut it out already? Why don't they cut it out already, turn from their sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus? And I think that the answer to these questions starts with an understanding of what Paul tells us in his first epistle to the Corinthians. So if you're in 1 Corinthians, we'll start with verses 20 and 21, where Paul writes this. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world. Indeed, if there is anything that the world would call foolish, it's Christmas. And the reason that there's a war on Christmas is because there's a war on God. The world is at war with God. They protest Christmas because they're foolish enough to protest God. And this is exactly why James, the apostle, said this in James 4.4. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And it's why John told us, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As God looked across the spectrum of humanity, his verdict was this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the condition that God, by his great mercy, has rescued and redeemed us from. And it's the spiritual condition that we were born into. It's the spiritual condition of the world. The greatest example of anybody ridiculing or mocking or laughing 
An extremely wise plan is found in humanity's reaction to God's plan of redemption in sending his only son, Jesus Christ, in order that the one who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It's common for us to think that, you know, when, when Paul wrote this, um, this epistle to the Corinthians, the people were, you know, these people were barbaric, right? I mean, these people are kind of dumb. These people are uneducated. They're so unsophisticated in their thinking, right? No, that is not the case. The greatest period of philosophical thought and discovery in the history of the world had started only a few hundred years before this time. These people were very, very sophisticated in their thinking. They had studied Socrates. They had studied Plato. They had studied Aristotle. They had studied the great philosophers. And they took a lot of pride in their knowledge. They were good thinkers. They were highly intelligent people. And yet, what did all the wisdom of all these great philosophers, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and other Greek philosophers, what did all of this wisdom do to solve the ultimate problem that humanity faced, which is spiritual separation from God? All the wisdom of men put together did absolutely nothing to remedy our greatest need to be reconciled to God. In all of their so-called wisdom, the world could not come to a true knowledge, a true understanding, or a relationship with God. God's ways are so radically, radically different from the ways of human wisdom that when man considers the ways of God, they seem like foolishness. When we sing songs like Joy to the World, the Lord has come, their reaction isn't to feel a sense of, of awe. Rather, their reaction is to believe that the idea of God stepping down out of eternity to take on flesh is utter foolishness. It's, it's nonsense to them. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of, which is exactly what we're accused of doing, making a fairy tale out of this story of Jesus. The gospel is utter foolishness to the world. And if the message that we are preaching to a dying world that doesn't know God, doesn't strike them as foolishness, if our message doesn't strike them as absolutely ridiculous, it's not the gospel that we're preaching. We try to make the gospel so palatable, so understandable to natural man but it can't be done and maintain the cohesion of the gospel, the, the truthfulness of the gospel. It must be compromised if we're going to have it make sense to absolutely everybody. The Greek word that Paul uses here for foolishness is moreno, which is de derived from the word uh, moros, which is actually the word that we get the word moron from. Paul is saying that if we're preaching the gospel, the world is going to think we sound like a bunch of morons. Because the wisdom of God, from the world's perspective, seems foolish, seems moronic. And this word, foolish, in all of its various forms, is found 23 times in the New Testament, 14 times from Paul, who was more than happy to be a moron for Jesus, and nine times 
from Jesus. At one point in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul urges his readers, writing in chapter 3, verse 18, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And he'd go on to urge his readers in uh, chapter 4, verse 10, saying, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are fools. We are morons. Do you see how this all relates to Christmas? At Christmas, we are remembering and celebrating God's plan of redemption. Christmas is fundamentally about the gospel. But the gospel is foolishness to the world. So we have to understand that there is a logical and inescapable and necessary conclusion that these two premises lead us to. The two premises are, Christmas is about the gospel, the gospel is foolishness to the world, the necessary conclusion is that Christmas is absolute foolishness to the world. The birth of Christ was a perfect and ultimate and final demonstration of God's unsearchable, perfect wisdom. The mission of Christ to step out of eternity and to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and thereby redeem for himself a chosen people is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To those who don't believe, all of this seems foolish. All of this seems moronic. After all, if God is going to do this, if there is a God, And God's going to do this. Why would he be born in a manger? I mean, why wouldn't he make some kind of announcement like kings? If he's truly the king of kings, you know, kings are born in high places. Kings are born in palaces. Kings are born in cribs made of gold with silver spoons and all the finest things that the world has to offer at their disposal. So how much more would the king of kings deserve a higher place for his birth? And yet he's born in a lowly manger? Seriously? See, in Roman culture, fellow kings and emperors and politicians would make sure that all the higher-ups in society knew about the birth of a king. And yet the people who were informed of the birth of Christ were a bunch of uneducated, lowly shepherds? See, from the world's perspective, this just sounds idiotic. This sounds like foolishness. It's all so backwards. From a worldly perspective, Christmas, the Christmas story, the story of the incarnation, doesn't make sense. It is moronic. The world would say that this doesn't demonstrate the wisdom of God. It demonstrates the foolishness of God, if anything. From a worldly mindset, they would say it doesn't demonstrate the power of God. It demonstrates the weakness of God. And yet the truth is that this was a perfect demonstration of God's unsearchable wisdom and unparalleled power. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He continues talking about the foolishness of the gospel, writing this. He says, for Jews... Demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jews demanded signs, and so the gospel is foolishness to them. They wanted, they expected the Messiah to be this earthly king who would come in and free them from Roman captivity, Roman oppression. They expected the Messiah to be an earthly king who would free them physically. In their minds, this was the sure sign of the Messiah. The idea of the Messiah being a humble man who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, was complete nonsense to them. They're still waiting for the Messiah to show up. They're still waiting. To this very day, the gospel is to the Jew a stumbling block. Gentiles sought worldly knowledge. Gentiles sought sophisticated worldly wisdom. They would spend hours listening to very, very skilled public speakers talking about philosophy, talking about logic, talking about existence, and all those things. They, they placed a very high value on things like intellect and learning. These were people who knew how to think, not just what to think. They knew how to think. And the idea of God Stepping out of eternity to bear the wrath of God against their sins seemed absolutely ridiculous. What kind of a God would do that? See, their mythological gods would never do something like that. They would never exercise humility like that. And in their mind, no God would ever do that. Further, the Gentiles had a very low view, a very low opinion of anyone who was criminal enough to face death by crucifixion. That was reserved for the lowest elements of society. Death in the Gentile mind represented final and ultimate defeat. It was the furthest thing from victory. And so for these reasons, the gospel was folly to the Gentiles. It was absolutely foolish in their opinion. It didn't make logical sense. So the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. The Jews wanted a powerful leader who would establish and reign over a worldly kingdom, and the Gentiles wanted something that made logical, coherent sense. Who's left? Who's left to believe? If, I, if we were to do a poll here, and I said, uh, will everybody who's a Jew or a Gentile raise their hand? That, that's everybody, right? It covers everyone. So this is a very important question. If the Jews reject the gospel because it's a stumbling block, and the Gentiles reject it because it seems foolish, how does anybody ever believe? How does anybody ever believe? That's the question that Paul's going to answer next. Verse 24. He says, but, there's the contrast. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The reason that anybody believes is that they're called. They're called. This is talking about God's sovereign and effectual calling 
on an individual. To the Romans, Paul wrote this. This is one of the most uh, well-known, well-recognized passages that deals with the effectual calling of God. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And if we look back through this first chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, we get an understanding of this, a deeper understanding of this calling. And starting in, in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, he introduces himself, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was called to this position specifically by Jesus. Being an apostle of Jesus Christ was not something that Paul signed up to do. It was not something that he volunteered to do. It wasn't his own will. It was God's will for Paul. In verse 2, we read this. Now he's talking about who he's talking to, whom he's addressing. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you go. Two more instances of this word call or or called. First, Paul tells us, God called the people to the church of Corinth. What did he call them to? Sainthood. He called, he called them to be saints. In fact, the Greek word for church literally comes from two words put together, which would literally mean called out persons or called out ones. If you are in Christ, it's because you have been called by God. And secondly, Paul says, they will call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereign, effectual calling is what leads a person to believe in the gospel, to be a saint. God must open the sinner's eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel because without that happening, the gospel is perceived by the individual to be absolutely foolish. And this is why Paul would go on to say in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he, he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And he goes on to say, the natural person, the world, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul would write in his second letter to the church of Corinth, chapter 4, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God 
of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is what God has called you out of. He's called you out of blindness. He has called you out of darkness. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. My hope and my, my prayer is that you would see that this leaves no room for us to boast of ourselves that we're in Christ. Which is why Paul would go on to say, we're skipping ahead a little bit here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why, Paul? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see the amazing gift that God has given you? He's called you. He drew you to his son. There is no room to boast because Paul makes it clear that this is what God has done. It's because of God the Father that you are in Christ Jesus. He opened your eyes to see the glorious truth of the gospel so that the devil, the evil one, the God of this world would no longer blind you. God gave you sight. He gave you understanding. He gave you the ability to see his plan as wisdom. And that's the only reason that we are able to see the light of the gospel of Christ. You see from all this that the reason that the world hates Christmas is because the devil hates the gospel. And the devil hates the gospel because the devil hates God. And because the devil hates the gospel, he hates Christmas. And the world, that is the humanistic system which stands opposed to God, the world is under the devil's control. Claiming to be wise, they're fools. Claiming to see, they're actually blinded by the devil. Do you see how this should cause us to respond to the war on Christmas and the war on Christianity and the war against Christians with compassion. With compassion. That that should be our response. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting frustrated with people who think that this is all just a bunch of foolishness, with people who think that uh, if you're a Christian, you're a moron, we should be brokenhearted with compassion for them. We should be praying that God would open their eyes. 
And when we're tempted to become angry or, you know, frustrated, we must instead respond with a stronger resolve to love them as God has loved us. The devil has always stood against God's plans and God's purposes. And sometimes this is seen in really, really obvious ways. Let's say that, you know, a, a king comes up, you know, there, there, there's a coup in a country and, and a king rises up and he hates Christians and they start persecuting and murdering and beheading Christians. That's an obvious way that the devil is working against God's purposes and plans. History shows this type of thing happening around the world over and over and over again throughout history. But more often, it's not that obvious when the devil's behind something. More often, the devil will try to prevent God's plans and purposes from coming to pass by perverting what God has declared holy and sacred. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Why? You know, he, he, he's not you know, out there with you know, horns and a tail and all that stuff so that it's really obvious. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Why? Because we say, oh, an angel of light. I'll listen to what he says. That's the plan. He has done this over and over and over again throughout history as well, differently with the gospel. Tons of different ways, tons of different perversions of the gospel, and it's the same thing that he's done with Christmas. So you might ask, you know, how has the devil perverted Christmas? Well, that's not complicated. In a season in which we should be grateful and celebrate the coming of Christ, celebrate the gospel, the devil has convinced the unbelieving world that this season is about you. This season is all about you and what you want. Instead of finding contentment in Christ, the unbelieving world sees Christmas as a time to covet. And maybe, maybe spread goodwill. But what's the motivation? They're coveting a good reputation. Or they're coveting something in return. The world fails to see the way that the devil has turned Christmas into an entire month out of the year, which he uses to his own benefit by turning Christmas from a season in which Christ should be exalted into a season in which man exalts himself. The foolishness of Christmas stands in opposition to the world's understanding of Christmas. The gospel confronts the covetousness and the selfishness that the world demonstrates with greater urgency at Christmas than any other time of year because the Christmas message demands that we respond in humility. That we find no reason to boast in ourselves. It leaves no room for boasting. It demands that we respond in humble obedience. It demands that we repent of the sin which once gave us so much empty, unsatisfying, unfulfilling joy and pleasure. And to those who have been called by God and who believe, 
Paul says that this is the power and the wisdom of God. Paul continues, verses 25 to 27. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And the, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. And of course, these are figures of speech because there is no foolishness in God. There is no weakness in God. But if there were, his foolishness would be greater than the wisdom of man and his weakness would be infinitely greater than the strength of man. And the natural man will look at Christmas and say this this just can't be because this doesn't make sense. It's, it's illogical. It defies reason. So let's talk about simple logic here for a moment. A man must be with a woman for her to be with child. And yet Mary was not with a man. She had become engaged to Joseph, but they weren't married yet. So let's take these two premises. Number one, a woman must be with a man to be with child. And number two, Mary wasn't with a man. Therefore, it is impossible. It is logically incoherent to believe that she would be with child. And to claim otherwise is illogical. It's foolish. Or so the world would think. Except that Christmas shows us that with God, Nothing is impossible. When Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what did Nicodemus say in return to that? He gets a little bit snarky with Jesus. He gets a little bit sarcastic and biting with Jesus. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, he's mocking Jesus because the idea seems absolutely foolish to him. He's basically saying, wait a minute, this idea of being born again, being born a second time, isn't logical at all. It doesn't make sense. It's logically and physically impossible. It's foolishness. The message of Christmas is foolishness to the natural man. He can't make any sense of it. And this is one way that we know that Christmas is not just about giving things. It's not just about being a good person. It's not just about you know, goodwill toward men and, and being generous because those things all make sense to everybody. And Paul says that God's plan shames those who in their disbelief claim to be wise or strong. How so? Because the world doesn't recognize true wisdom, the wisdom of God, and the world doesn't recognize true power, the power of God, when it's laid out right before them. 
And because they can't recognize it for what it is, wisdom and power, because they can't make any sense of it, they consider the wisest plan ever conceived to be foolishness. And that shames them. That shames them because they claim to be wise. Great, here's the wisest plan ever made. And they look at it, I don't get it. But through his unsearchable wisdom, God succeeded at the very thing that man, in all of his greatest wisdom, had failed to do, and that is to reconcile unholy sinners with a holy and righteous God and to transform those sinners into the likeness of himself in their character. Friends, may that be the focus of our hearts this Christmas, to yield our hearts to God and thereby grow in conformity to the likeness of Christ. Christ was mocked. Christ was scorned by the world. And if we're faithful to proclaim the gospel, the real Christmas message, there's a good chance that we will be too. Our message will seem like foolishness. Our obedience to Christ, our eagerness to yield to Him, our eagerness to obey His commands and to devote our lives to glorifying Him, it will all seem like foolishness to a lost and dying world. But if we understand the doctrines of grace and redemption as Paul has revealed them for us today, We'll also understand that spreading the good news of Christ, spreading the gospel, proclaiming the gospel message to those who consider it to be foolishness always brings hope of life and love to a dead world because God uses this power, the power of this message of Christmas to open the eyes of the foolish, to see and understand and believe in the power and wisdom and in the love of God as it was demonstrated in the birth, in the life, and in the resurrection, or the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the sinless life that we should have lived and died the sinner's death that we deserved in order that we may be redeemed, reconciled, to God, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, in accordance with the scriptures alone. The foolishness of Christmas is the wisdom and the power of God to redeem everyone who will place saving faith in Christ. And we must remember that no effort to share the gospel with someone who thinks that the Christmas message is foolishness, no effort is wasted or in vain because with God, no person and no situation is hopeless or impossible. The Christmas message is the gospel message. And the gospel message always, always brings hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a season, Lord, in which we can remember your wisdom, your power, and your love. 
in sending your son in order that by believing in him we may have life and never perish. Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ. And Lord, in this truth, we recognize that there is no room for us to boast except in you, except in your plan, your work, in opening our eyes and in redeeming us, giving us understanding through your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, for for us to have boldness to proclaim the gospel at Christmas. And we pray for those we'll share the message with, those who are blind, those who can't see the beauty of Christ, the wisdom, the power, and the love that you showed by sending your Son. We pray, Lord, that though it may seem foolish, that the seeds would be planted, and Lord, we leave it in your hands knowing that you are good. But give us strength and boldness to proclaim the Christmas message, the gospel message, for your glory, in Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.